Jeremiah chapter 4. Jim has a Bible. If you need a Bible, you're going to want a Bible. We're going to read some Bible tonight. I hope that Pastor Chris and Pastor Josh treated you all well. It's good to be reminded that the body of Christ is bigger than just us. At one point on Sunday, I looked around. I was actually in a room with, it was like 15 people from six different churches. Same Jesus and same love. It's a cool moment. It was good for me to be reminded of that. Also good to be back here with all of you. And good to be back in Jeremiah. I'm going to try to pick up the pace this evening. Not for the sake of, not, not fast for the sake of going fast, but starting in chapter 4, verse 5, where we left off last week, Jeremiah lays on us a collection of messages that really revolve around a single theme. Disaster is coming for God's people. And because the, the, the messages that he speaks are clustered around that, we're going to try to keep them together tonight. Chapter 2 and 3, because we've been away for a week, remember that God was speaking about the offense of Judah. The offense of Judah, which is the same offense of Israel, the northern kingdom before them. The offense that his people had committed against him. And the tone, we noticed, was the tone of a prosecuting attorney almost. Here's, here are the charges. Here's the indictment. It, it's also the tone of an outraged husband saying, here are my grounds for, for divorce proceedings. Well, starting in verse 5 of chapter 4, we're going to start shifting from crime to punishment. It's going to be still a little bit of back and forth, but we're going to shift from reading, reciting the indictment to the sentencing phase. God announcing, and here are the consequences. And if you think back to Chapter 1, we've had a preview of this already. Chapter 1, Jeremiah's call to ministry, part of what God spoke to him in calling him to be a prophet was a vision, chapter 1, verse 13, of a boiling cauldron of God's judgment that was going to spill onto Judah from the north. Chapter 1, and chapters 2 and 3, judgment is coming, said God. Chapter 4, 5, and 6, which is a what we're going to undertake tonight, God is going to say through Jeremiah, hey, judgment is here, or at least almost here, at the door, very nearly here. More than just storm clouds gathering on the horizon, more than just the promise of, of some distant future. No, this is impending destruction. And God's going to underline, you've got no one to blame but yourselves. Jeremiah 4, verse 5, Declare in Judah and proclaim in Jerusalem, and say, Blow the trumpet in the land, cry, Gather together, and say, Assemble yourselves, and let us go into the fortified cities. Get to safety, in other words. Set up the standard toward Zion, verse 6. Take refuge, do not delay, for I'll bring disaster from the north. There it is again. And great destruction. Set the standard toward Zion. Wave the flag, unfurl the banner. It could also be start the fire, start the smoke signal. 
Archaeologists have found reference to this in contemporaneous writings. They found reference to signaling between cities as they've dug out the city of Lachish, a fortified city near Jerusalem writing the dates to the, the time of Nebuchadnezzar's third invasion. So, so this was the thing that they did. They signaled one another. It, it, and, it, and it reads like a telegram, right? Take refuge, don't delay, disaster coming. Verse 7, the lion has come up from his thicket, and the destroyer of nations is on his way. He's gone forth from his place to make your land desolate. Your cities will be laid waste without inhabitant. Now, lion, the obvious interpretation, and, and, the, and a correct interpretation, is the Babylonian army, which was, in fact, a destroyer of nations. Who else, though, is a destroyer in Scripture? Destroyer of people, destroyer of souls. Satan, who coincidentally, except not, is also described in Scripture as a lion. Something to keep in mind. There's nothing that we're going to look at tonight that just shouts long-term interpretation. But there are a few shadows, a few nudges and winks like this that remind us that there's layers within layers here. As we think about who the destroyer is, let's remember why there's destruction. Again, we've been away a week, but remember what we read in the indictment in chapters 2 and 3, the grounds, the charges. Catastrophic, colossal, comprehensive failure on the part of the people to worship their God. Failure of the priests, failures of the leaders, failure of the people to worship, to remember and to repent any of the numerous times that God called them back to himself. For this, verse 8, clothe yourself with sackcloth, lament and wail, for the fierce anger of the Lord has not turned back from us. And the worst part, God says through Jeremiah, is how many people are going to be shocked, utterly stunned when it happens. They shouldn't be, but it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord, that the heart of the king shall perish. The heart of the princes, the priests, shall be astonished. And the prophets shall wonder, what's happening? Why is this happening? How could this be happening to us? Aren't we God's people? Verse 10, Jeremiah responds, and this is interesting. Then I said, Jeremiah said, Oh, Lord God, Surely you've greatly deceived this people in Jerusalem, saying you shall have peace, whereas the sword reaches to the heart. God, you promised peace, and now we're getting stabbed through the chest. Now, is this Jeremiah himself being overwhelmed at the scope of what God is showing him and what God is giving him to speak? Maybe. Maybe, because it's a lot. I think more likely, though, because, because later Jeremiah is going to speak epic things like this without hesitation. I think it's more likely that he's repeating what others say. God, they're saying this. God, they're believing that. The false prophets are saying, peace, peace. And the people think it's from you. The people think that you promised peace, and, 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 and now comes the sword. What do you want me to tell them? 
Verse 11, at that time it will be said to this people into Jerusalem, a dry wind of the desolate heights blows in the wilderness toward the daughter of my people, not to fan or to cleanse. A wind too strong for these will come for me. Now I will also speak judgment against them. Tell them, God says, judgment. Tell them, God says, righteous vengeance for your conduct. The word for wind here is Sirocco. Sirocco, I think, is the better pronunciation. It's a dry, hot east wind that can blow for days in this region. And, and like locusts, it just lays to waste whatever lies in its path. This is not a winnowing wind that separates wheat from chaff. This is destruction, pure and simple. Verse 13, Behold, he shall come up like clouds, and his chariots like a whirlwind. His horses are swifter than eagles. Woe to us, for we are plundered. God's saying, the army and the general leading it will come like a wind. It won't be a wind. God doesn't want them to misunderstand. He shall come. Why again is this? O Jerusalem, wash your heart from wickedness that you might be saved. How long shall your evil thoughts lodge within you? For a voice declares from Dan and proclaims affliction from out Ephraim. Make mention to the nations. Yes, proclaim against Jerusalem that watchers come from a far country and raise their voice against the cities of Judah. Like keepers of a field, they're against her all around because she has been rebellious against me, says the Lord. Your ways and your doing have procured these things for you. This is your wickedness because it's bitter, because it reaches to your heart. You notice the, the, the tone. I didn't do a great job of conveying it, but there's a growing urgency verse over verse. It's sort of like when a, when a tornado watch becomes a tornado warning. Hey, this, the, 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 the situation, the weather is ripe for a tornado. A tornado's coming. No, a tornado's here. From the north, just as God said, you, we might miss it, because we think of Dan, the tribe of Dan, the territory of Dan being further south. We can sometimes forget that they relocated after their initial settlement. And at this time, Dan was actually the furthest tribe to the north. So from the north and then moving to the south, moving to Mount Ephraim, which was just 10 miles away from Jerusalem. They're coming, they're coming, they're coming, they're coming. And there's two messages that Jeremiah is conveying. First is, is with this army is coming destruction. Destruction like, like a wind. Destruction like locusts, we read in Joel. Destruction like vultures, we read in Habakkuk. And the second message, repent, verse 14, repent while you still can. Even in judgment, God rem remembers mercy, right? except Jeremiah knows because God has revealed so much of this to him. Jeremiah knows what the outcome is going to be. Verse 19, Oh, my soul, my soul, I'm pained in my very heart. My heart makes a noise in me. I cannot hold my peace. Because you've heard, oh, my soul, the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. Destruction upon destruction is cried, for the whole land is plundered. Suddenly my tents are plundered. And my curtains in a moment. How long will I see the standard and hear the sound of the trumpet? His soul is, is, is what we read in the New King James. My anguish, 
is how the NIV renders it. Literally, my bowels, my kidneys. Because those were thought to be, in Jeremiah's day, the seat of emotion. Oh, I'm just, I'm just racked. I'm, I'm torn in the deepest places. Verses 19 to 21 are sometimes called the cross of Jeremiah. We get this intense, very personal look at his pain. How it pains him to proclaim this or possibly to witness this. Because we don't know when he wrote these verses. Is this prophecy or is this commentary? Is this history written in advance or is this history that Jeremiah is writing as it's happening? It doesn't matter. Because when God speaks a thing, it's as good as done. Even if it were prophecy, it's not like it's uncertain. Either way, it causes Jeremiah the, the deepest anguish. Verse 22, for my people are foolish. They've not known me. This is God speaking through Jeremiah, obviously. They have no understanding. They're wise to do evil, but to do good they have no knowledge. God replies, literally, they have not known me, or, or literally, me they have not known. They know of me. They know about me but they don't know me. Over in youth tonight, they're in Galatians chapter 4. In one of the verses that they're going to camp out on, Galatians 4.9, but now after you've known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and, and beggarly things? There's a difference between intellectual knowledge and personal, relational, experiential knowledge. Yeah, they, they acknowledge that I exist, God says. They believe that, I'm, that I am. But they don't know me. We don't have an intimate, personal relationship. But I know them. I know everything about them, he says. They're foolish. Fool, foolish fool. Rob did a study on this a couple years ago. The word fool in the Old Testament always refer, refers to one who refuses instruction one who won't hear correction. They're fools. I've tried to instruct them, they won't hear it. Their only skill is evil doing. So, God says, it's sowing and reaping time. It's time to reap what they've sown. Verse 23, I beheld the earth, and indeed it was without form and void. God goes back to the beginning. The heavens, they had no light. I beheld the mountains, and indeed they trembled, and all the hills moved back and forth. I beheld, and indeed there was no man, and all the birds of the heaven had fled. I beheld, and indeed the fruitful land was a wilderness, and all its cities were broken down at the presence of the Lord by his fierce anger. It's going to be cataclysmic, God says. When I bring judgment, it's going to be apocalyptic, which, which, which begs us to wonder, okay, is this short-term fulfillment or long-term fulfillment? Or is it both? Is it going to feel like a complete destruction of the world when Nebuchadnezzar's army comes? And will it only to be like that, it'll actually happen when Jesus returns. I, again, I think what's in view here in these chapters is primarily short term. I don't, want to, I don't want to strive too hard to see something that may not be there. Because the judgment here, verse 22, is clearly against God's people. The second coming is judgment on behalf of God's people. So there's an important distinction. 
if I wanted to argue against myself, I'd say, but what about the tribulation? Because the tribulation is the chastisement of God's people. And I think maybe that's fair. Let's keep going and see if the rest of the chapter gives us a clue. Verse 30, and when you're plundered, what will you do? Though you clothe yourself with crimson, though you adorn yourself with ornaments of gold, though you enlarge your eyes with paint, in vain you'll make yourself fair. Your lovers will despise you, they'll seek your life. Judah is hoping that harlotry, spiritual adultery, will save her. Hoping that further deepening her alliances with surrounding nations and the gods of those nations will somehow spare her God's judgment. How does that make sense? It doesn't. If you're tilting your head and saying, where's the logic there? There isn't any. But that's what sin does. That's the sin cycle that we're so familiar with, right? The addiction spiral that a lot of us have experienced. We go back to the, the behavior that got us in trouble, somehow thinking it's going to get us out of trouble. The sin that got us where we are isn't going to get us out of where we are. But in our desperation, sometimes we feel like we don't have another choice. We always do. We sang about it at the beginning of service. Grayson prayed about it at the, at the transition. We're never alone. But in our sin and in our darkness and in our misery, sometimes we forget that. So this is undoubtedly a reference to Judah with a, with that, a last minute appeal to, to Nebuchadnezzar, perhaps to Egypt, we know. They, they make an, uh, overtures to Egypt in their, in their desperation. Don't destroy us. Align with us. Subjugate us. If, if you align yourself with us and protect us, you can have your way with us. Could it also be a reference to a future Israel aligning itself with other nations, the peace treaty that Antichrist brokers? Maybe. I don't want to say more than maybe because I can't find anybody who agrees with me. But clothe yourselves with crimson seems provocative to me. Because remember, Antichrist is not just against Christ. He's a false Christ who will appear to be Israel's Messiah. Maybe, and that's all I can say. But verse 31, I've heard a voice as of a woman in labor. The anguish is of her who brings forth her first child. The voice of the daughter of Zion bewailing herself. And that, again, tempts us to see a shadow lurking here because the image of a woman in labor is a metaphor that Jesus himself gives us for the tribulation leading up to the kingdom of Antichrist and the return of Jesus. So maybe they're lurking in the shadows. But Judah at least spreads her hand saying, Woe is me now, for my soul is weary because of murderers. Let's keep going because Jeremiah keeps going. Chapter 5, same theme. Run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. Seek and know and seek, her, uh, seek in her open places. If you can find a man, if there's anyone who executes judgment, who seeks the truth, and I'll pardon her. So this is an object lesson. This is, this is we see Jeremiah do this several times. Ezekiel does this. Isaiah does it once. This is Gideon territory where Gideon acts out the point that God is making. 
In a couple of weeks in Acts 21, Agabus binds with, with a belt to demonstrate how Paul is going to be bound. God is, is sending Jeremiah out into the streets. See if there's anyone worthy of saving, anyone who is honest, anyone who honestly loves me, anyone who honestly worships me, who's not just giving lip service, not just going through the motions, and I'll spare her, not the honest person alone, but her, Jerusalem. Though they say, as the Lord lives, surely they swear falsely. Oh, Lord, are your eyes on the, not are your eyes on the truth. You've stricken them. But they've not grieved. You've consumed them, but they've refused to receive correction. They've made their faces harder than rock. They've refused to return. Jeremiah says, but I, I, I searched, but I searched in vain. But then, then, then he, he hopes. Therefore, I said, surely these are poor. They're foolish. They don't know any better. They haven't, they haven't read anything. They don't know the way of the Lord, the judgment of their God. I'll go to the great men, verse 5, and speak to them. For they've known the way of the Lord, the judgment of their God. And, and so they should understand what it is that I'm talking to about, but, but, but no joy there either. These have altogether broken the yoke and burst the bonds. They're, they're runaway animals. They refuse to, to heed the Lord's direction or correction. Therefore, verse 6, a lion from the forest shall slay them. A wolf of the desert shall destroy them. A leopard will watch over their cities. Everyone who goes out from there shall be torn in pieces because their transgressions are many. Their backslidings have increased. At the very time, they should be turning around and repenting and falling back in line. No, they're doubling down on their sin. And because of that, God asks, verse 7, what am I, what am I supposed to do here? When my people refuse to, to acknowledge me, to obey me, to follow me, to love me, to worship me after, after everything I've done, after all of the opportunities that I've given, what am I supposed to do here? How shall I pardon you for this? Verse 7. Your children have forsaken me and sworn by those that are not gods. When I'd fed them to the full, when I'd taken care of them and provided for them, then they committed adultery, spiritual adultery, and assembled themselves by troops in the harlots' houses. I'm, I'm presuming spiritual adultery. You could read this, that they're committing sexual sin as an act of worship in, in the temples to false gods, and I suppose that's possible. What am I supposed to do, God says? The, the more that, that, I, that I seek my people and provide for my people and, and try to lead and teach my people, the more they rebel against me. And God's made it clear again and again and again and again, he would prefer to forgive. He would much rather restore. He has but one precondition, repentance. And verse 3, they're not going there. God has stricken them, but they haven't grieved, consumed them, but they refuse to receive correction. They've steeled their faces and refused to return, refused to repent. And so, verse 10 Go up on our walls and destroy. But do not make a complete end. Take away her branches, for they're not the Lord's. For the house of Israel and the house of Judah have dealt very treacherously with me, says the Lord. They've lied about the Lord and said it's not he. God hasn't done these things for us. Neither will evil come upon us. God's full of empty threats. Nor shall we see sword or famine. The prophets are full of it. For the word is not in them. Thus it will be done to them. 
verse 13, again, you, it's another one you could read both ways. Verse 13 could, could be the false prophets are just windbags. They've become wind and, 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 and will be revealed as such. Or, and I think that this is the better way to read it, the true prophets, the prophets that God sent, are treated like wind. Their, 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 their words disappear on the wind. I lean that way because of, of where God goes in, in verse 14. The Holy Spirit continues, Therefore thus says the Lord God of hosts, Because you, Jeremiah, speak this word, behold, I will make my words in your mouth, Jeremiah's mouth, fire, and this people would, and it shall devour them. He's speaking of Jeremiah. He said, I'm going to make your words like fire. They haven't, they haven't heeded the other prophets. I'm going to pull on all of the stops, and you're going to spit fire when you preach. And, and, and we're going to hold nothing back, and it's either going to drive them to repentance or drive them to destruction. Fire, you might just file away in the back of your mind. God refers to Jeremiah and fire in the, in the, in the same sentence, in the same verse, and with the same idea more than a couple times in this book. You're going to spit fire, Jeremiah. You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna spit powerful words. And, and here's what you're going to say, verse 15. Behold, I bring a nation against you from afar. O house of Israel, says the Lord. So he's speaking of the remnant of the north and the entirety of the south. It's a mighty nation that's coming against you, an ancient nation, a nation whose language you do not know, nor can you understand what they say. Their quiver's like an open tomb. They're all mighty men, and they shall eat up your harvest and your bread, which your sons and daughters should eat. They won't get to eat. They shall eat up your flocks and your herds. They shall eat up your vines and your fig trees. They'll destroy your fortified cities, the cities in which you trust, with the sword. The shockingly accurate description of how Babylon tended to attack. It was a scorched earth policy. They, they left nothing. And it's a shockingly accurate description of how Babylon does attack Judah with one difference, one significant difference. Verse 18, unlike Babylon's other enemies, other like the, uh, unlike the other lands that she conquered, Judah, Jerusalem especially, won't be completely, not completely, wiped out. Nevertheless, in those days, says the Lord, I will not make a complete end of you. Close, but not complete. Why not? Because God's ultimate goal is not destruction, it's still correction. And again, this is clearly short-term prophecy but for those of us gazing into the shadows to see what we can see, that's true for the tribulation as well. What do we read in Daniel 9? One of the goals of the tribulation is the chastisement of Israel. Shaking that which can be shaken with what goal? Repentance. But in, in, in the near term, verse 19, it will be when you say, why does the Lord our God do these things to us? that you shall answer them. Just as you've forsaken me and serve foreign gods in your land, so you shall serve alien gods in a land that is not yours. You want to worship foreign gods? Go do it in a foreign country, God says. You want to worship foreign gods? That's, that, I, that's, I, that's, that's up to you, but don't do it in the land that I gave you. Don't do it in the land that I set aside for you to worship me in. No, go, go, go worship foreign gods in the land that those gods came from. God's goal is to teach them. 
God's goal is that they would finally somehow grasp the cause and effect relationship that should be obvious, to punish them enough that they will see the law of sowing and reaping. Verse 20, declare this in the house of Jacob and proclaim it in Judah, saying, hear now, O foolish people without understanding, who have eyes and see not, who have ears and hear not. Do you not fear me, says the Lord? Will you not tremble at my presence? Who have placed the sea, uh, the sand as a bound of the sea? I did that by a perpetual degree that it cannot pass beyond it. And though its waves toss to and fro, yet they cannot prevail. Though they roar, they cannot pass over it. I'm creator God, he reminds them. But this people, oi, this people has a defiant and rebellious heart. They revolted and departed. They do not say in their heart what they should say. They do not say in their heart, let us now fear the Lord our God who gives rain, both the former and the latter in its season, because if we offend him, he might not give the rain. He reserves for us the appointed weeks of the harvest. The harvest comes from the Lord, so does drought. Your iniquities, God says, have turned these things away, and your sins have withheld good from you. Boy, is that powerful. The law of sowing and reaping. God says, you know, we, 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 we sometimes, in, in terms of current events, remind ourselves, you know, God has promised to bless those who bless Israel, curse those who curse Israel. That's, that's part of, that's a subset of a bigger picture. That's an example of a, a larger principle. God rewards those who seek him. He blesses those who love him. He chastises those who rebel against him. And he usually gets his way. <laughs> Your sin, verse 25, is keeping the good that God wants to do for you away from you. Think about that. Your sin is keeping the good that God wants to do for you away from you. That's a universal principle. That can happen in our lives. It can happen to any of us at any time. Here, God says it's going to happen to Judah, and he lays out some reasons it's going to happen to Judah. For among my people are found wicked men. They lie in wait as one who sets snares. They set a trap. They catch men. As a cage is full of birds, so their houses are full of deceit. Therefore, they become great in their own eyes and grown rich in earthly treasure. They've grown fat. They're sleek. Yet they surpass the deeds of the wicked. They do not plead the cause, the cause of the fatherless, Yet they prosper in the right of the needy they do not defend. They don't love the things I love, God says. Their priorities are not my priorities. Their heart is not my heart. So God asks again, shall I not punish them for these things? Shall I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? Is, this not, is, is what I'm talking about here, is it not justice? Does this not seem righteous? Is this not what they have demanded? Is it not what they brought on themselves? It's a rhetorical question. The obvious answer is yes. And God clearly agrees. Verse 30, an astonishing and horrible thing has been committed in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule by their own power. My people love to have it so. But what will you do in the end? Which would be an easy off-ramp to application well, let's go to chapter 6 before we get there. What will you do in the end? It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a question just fraught with meaning because God says this is the end, so you better decide soon. 
Here's what it looks like. Verse 1, Oh, you children of Benjamin, gather yourselves to flee from the midst of Jerusalem. Blow the trumpet and set up a signal fire, for disaster appears out of the north and great destruction. I've likened the daughter of Zion to a lovely and delicate woman, to the shepherds with their flocks shall come to her. They shall pitch their tents all against her all around. Each one shall pasture in his own place. Well, that, that, that sounds nurturing and loving until we realize that the shepherds are military officers and the flocks are flocks of soldiers. They're going to take what they're whatever they can find and have their way with whoever they come across. They're going to graze on the helpless is the idea here. The attack's going to come from the north. Prepare, war against, or arise, let us go up at noon. This is Nebuchadnezzar speaking. Woe to us for the day goes away, for the shadows of the evening are lengthening. Arise and let us go by night and let us destroy her palaces. They can't wait. They're going to get up early and, and, and so they can get more fighting in during the day. Cut down trees and build a mound against Jerusalem. This is the city to be punished. She's full of oppression in her midst. They're laying siege. They're surrounding her and they're preparing to, to defeat her walls. Why? The Lord never gets us, lets us get very far without reminding us why. As a fountain wells up with water, so she wells up with her wickedness. Violence and plundering are heard in her. Before me continually are grief and wounds. And again, we hear God's heart. Be instructed, O Jerusalem, lest my soul depart from you. Better translation, lest my soul be torn from you, be ripped from you, lest I make you desolate, verse 8, a land not inhabited. For those who will not heed, verse 9, they shall thoroughly glean as a vine the remnant of Israel as a grape gatherer, Put your hand back into the branches. Again, there are people who desperately want to see this as hopeful. The same people who read shepherds in verses 1 and 2, and they say, oh, well, isn't that nice? Oh, God is gleaning, and he's going to pull out those who are innocent, those who are righteous. No, God has already sent Jeremiah on that mission. He didn't find anybody. This is the, the invading army who's not leaving anything. The gleanings of the field were what was left over after the harvesters came through, after the threshers made their passes. There aren't going to be any gleanings. They're going to take even the gleanings is the idea here. <coughs> Excuse me. And in the midst of it, we hear Jeremiah despairing. To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Who will listen to me? Their ear is uncircumcised, it's fleshly, it's carnal. And because of that, they cannot give heed. Behold, the word of the Lord is a reproach to them. The things that God intends to correct them, they find dis 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 despicable. They've got no delight in it. Therefore, I'm full of the fury of the Lord. Now, at this point, is this Jeremiah talking or is this God talking? Or is Jeremiah so close to God at this point that they're indistinguishable? Is this Jeremiah seeing and knowing and understanding God's heart and he's, he's offended on God's behalf or are these the words of the Lord coming through? I, I, 
I, I don't think it matters. I think it's both. I think it's, I think it's either. I'm full of the fury of the Lord. I'm weary of holding it in. I'll pour it out on the children outside and on the assembly of young men together. For even the husband shall be taken with the wife, the aged with him who's full of days, and their houses shall be turned over to others, fields and wives together. For I'll stretch out my hand against the inhabitant of the land, says the Lord. Because from the least of them, even to the greatest of them, everyone is given to covetousness. And from the prophet, even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. They've also healed the hurt of my people slightly. That is to say, not at all. They've promised to heal and they haven't healed. They've said peace and peace and there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they weren't ashamed. They don't know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At the time I punish them, she shall be cast down, says the Lord. At the beginning, it's hard to distinguish. Is, is this Jeremiah saying, I'm going to pour my word out on everybody? Uh, God, you know, the words that God has given me to speak, I'm going to pour that out on anyone, everyone so that they can't say that they weren't warned? Is it God saying that I'm going to pour my wrath out on, on absolutely every, every demographic of the populace? I think it it could start off one, but it definitely ends the other. It's comprehensive, right? It's all-encompassing judgment. Why? Because it's all-encompassing guilt. To which some inevitably, because there are always some who say that's not fair. Verse 16, God says, no. Okay, well then stand in the ways and see and ask for the old paths where the good way is and walk in it. And then you'll find rest for your souls. Except no one is going to do that. They said, we will not walk in it. If you don't think that this is fair, God says, make a different choice. If you don't want my judgment, choose my mercy. All it requires is repentance, except you won't. You, they said, we will not walk in it. And, and, and this wouldn't be the first time that I've tried. I set watchmen over you saying, listen to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, we will not listen. And so, verse 18... Therefore hear you nations, and know, O congregations, what's among them. Hear, O earth. Behold, I will certainly, whether you believe it or not, bring calamity on this people, the fruit of their thoughts. This is what they asked for. This is what they wanted, because they've not heeded my words, nor my law, but rejected it. For what purpose to me comes frankincense from Sheba and sweet cane from a far country? It's, it's, it's empty ritual. It's form without function. It's behavior. It's, it's, it, there's, there's no heart of worship here. Your burnt offerings aren't acceptable, nor your sacrifices sweet to me. It's vain religion, and God hates religion. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I'll lay stumbling blocks before this people, and the father and sons together shall fall on them. The neighbor and his friend shall perish. Thus says the Lord, Behold, the people come from the north country, and a great nation will be raised from the farthest parts of the earth. They'll lay hold on bow and spear. They're cruel and have no mercy. Their voice roars like the sea. They ride on horses as men of war set in array against you, O daughter of Zion. Prophecy buffs are quick to seize on that. Oh, farthest parts of the earth. That's China. That's, that's, that's the Antichrist army. I mean, maybe again, in the shadows perhaps, but the Babylonian Empire came from the farthest parts of the known world of Jeremiah's day. So I'm not inclined to strive. Except, verse 24, we've heard the report of it, our hands grow feeble, anguish has taken hold of us, pain as of a woman in labor. So maybe. 
Do not go out into the field, nor walk by the way, because of the sword of the enemy. Fear is on every side. O daughter of my people, dress in sackcloth. Put on your mourning clothes. Roll about in ashes. Make mourning as for an only son. Uh, Zechariah, anyone? Most bitter lamentation. I think it's a foreshadowing, perhaps. For the plunderer will suddenly come upon us. Imagine being Jeremiah. God laying this on him. There's your ministry, Jay. This is your message. Verse 27, I've set you as an assayer and a fortress among my people that you may know and test their way. God is saying to Jeremiah, this is the message I'm giving you to deliver. If you don't believe it, if it doesn't seem reasonable or proportionate, do your own homework. Be an assayer, a surveyor. A sayer specifically is someone who tests the, the composition of, of metal. What are they made of? Do your own homework. Do, do, do your own research. I've already done mine. They're stubborn rebels, walking as slanderers. Bronze and iron, they're all corruptors. Stubborn rebel, literally it's rebellious rebels. They're, they're the rebelest of the rebels. A few years ago when we, when we studied Song of Songs together, we said it's the, the highest song of all the songs. These are the lowest rebels of all the rebels, is what God is saying. In verse 28, the bellows, sorry, verse 29, the bellows blow fiercely. The lead is consumed by the fire. The smelter refines in vain. No matter how hot the refining fire gets, the wicked are not drawn off. And people will call them rejected silver because the Lord has rejected them. When metal has contaminants, when it has impurities, and resists all attempts to, to, to heat up and burn off those impurities, to separate what's good from what's not good, and it doesn't matter, the furnace is as hot as the silversmith can get it and the impurities persist, the silversmith sets that hunk of metal aside. He's not able to use it. In a sense, it still has value because the silver is still there, but because he can't separate the silver from the things adulterating it, he can't make jewelry out of it. It has value, and yet at the same time, he can't do anything with it. And a lot of us have been in that place, haven't we? As we head to the finish line tonight. As we, as we reach out for some application to take home with us. I remember being really excited to call Jesus Savior and really reluctant to call him Lord. I was a couple of years with the Lord and I was still full of pride. I mean, we, that, that's the Christian life, right? Discovering another layer and another layer and another layer of, of our pride, of our, of our self-righteousness. But there was a season in, in my life in particular, I just didn't want to believe I wasn't a good enough person for God to use. My sin was forgiven, and I was really happy about that. But I wanted that to be enough. I wanted the, the person I was and the life that I was living and the, 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 the things that I was choosing to be enough. And I said to myself, and I said to people who, who were, I don't know why, listening to me at the time. 
Surely God can use me. And he could until he couldn't. He, he did until he didn't. Until we reached an impasse where I basically said, I will not be sanctified anymore. I'm done. Let me out of the furnace. You want me to serve you? You want me to use me to build your kingdom? Then use me. Use the person that I am now. Quit trying to change me or grow me or conform me into the image of Christ or something. I said to God, if you want to use me, use me the way that I am. And God said, okay. If those are my choices, then I won't use you. I said, God, just, just leave me alone. So he did. <laughs> he left me alone with my thoughts, left me alone with my pride, left me alone with my sin. Why? God doesn't negotiate with terrorists. And I've never felt so alone. I wasn't alone. But God removed his hand. He, rem he silenced his still, small voice. And it wasn't long before, true story, I started having panic attacks. Sometimes we refer to those seasons as being put on the shelf. There are other idioms for it. That's, that's one that's always resonated for me. And I know a lot of people, maybe, maybe you, you, you've experienced this too. I know a lot of people who have. I don't know anyone who's enjoyed it. <laughs> but that's what happens when we try to play chicken with God. He doesn't revoke our salvation because he promises that he won't. But we don't enjoy it. It's sort of like Israel. Israel has promised the land, and there's nothing that Israel can do to forfeit the land, but they can forfeit the privilege of living in the land. They can forfeit the right to enjoy the land. That, that, that's what's happening here in Jeremiah. And so, too, we can lose the privilege of enjoying our salvation. We can lose the opportunity to use our salvation to minister to others. I've been there. Maybe somebody here or maybe somebody watching online or somebody listening to the podcast is, is there right now. And, and, and if you are, I'm not trying to call you out. I'm not trying to shame you. A, because I've been there. And B, it, it, this is just where we are in God's word. You know, it's, it, it's, it's like after a bad breakup, it feels like every song on the radio is out to get you. When we're at odds with the Lord, if we're not in a good place with Jesus, it will seem like every verse in Scripture is gunning for you. Because it is. Because God's Word is alive and He's seeking you. He's pursuing you. Not to destroy you, but to convict you and to call you back to Him. The way that God does again and again and again to Judah in these three chapters. God is still the Father calling the prodigal home. I mean, how many times did we see that just in what we read tonight? The, the last one in verse 16. Chapter 6, verse 16. Thus says the Lord, stand in the ways and see. Ask for the old paths where the good way is and walk in it. And there you'll find rest for your souls. Now, the response of Judah was, no, we won't. We won't walk in that. We still can. We still get to. How do we do that? How do we get off the shelf? How do we get onto the pit? How do we get back to the Lord? God just told us, verse 16. To, to, to dissect a passage, what do we do? We look at the verbs. Stand, see, ask, 
walk, fine. That's our answer. If you're here tonight, if you're listening to this message and you're resonating way too much with Judah, do what they didn't do. Choose what they refused to choose. Stand. Stand on the word of God. Decide that it's true. Decide that it is the sole arbiter of your life and your path and your ways. Stand on the word. Decide to. See God's faithfulness in your life. See that it accords with his word. See that he keeps his promises. See that he does in the pages of scripture. See that he has consistently in your life. And ask. Ask God, what am I not doing that I need to be doing if you genuinely don't know? God, how do I do the thing that I know that I need to be doing if you do now? And then walk. It's not enough to know the right thing to do. It's not just knowing what to do. It's doing what we know. Walk, choose, obey. Because when we do, we find what? We find rest. We find a place of abiding. And when we find that place, we find joy. When we find that place, we find peace. When we find that place, we find power. Judah refused. Thought they knew better. Thought they had another way, another answer. Their answer was doubling down on the sin that got them there. And too often, that's our response when we're put on the shelf. We double down on whatever it was that got us sidelined. That's what Judah did. Let's us not. And if we are, let's stop. And if we have, let's repent. And if we did, let's try not to repeat. Instead, let's stand. Stand on God's word and declare it to be truth. Not just academic, abstract, intellectual truth. Our truth. The truth that, that governs our lives. And let's see where God is and where we are and the distance between us. And let's close that gap, remembering his faithfulness. And let's ask, God, what do I need to choose? God, give me what I need to choose. Give me your power. Give me your spirit to walk in your ways. Let's obey. Let's walk so that we can rest, so that we can love and serve and overflow with his grace. Lord, You meet us in your word and sometimes we really don't like it. But every page, every chapter, every verse is for us. Your word is alive and it speaks to us. Your spirit is love and pursues us. Lord, whatever we needed to get out of these last 40 minutes, I pray that you would root it in our hearts. Pray that it wouldn't fade to oblivion when we walk out of this room, but that it would take root and that you would nourish it. Lord, that you'd, you'd bring other verses, other truth, people speaking truth, people overflowing with your spirit into our lives to, to water what you've planted here tonight. And Lord, we pray that it would bring forth glorious fruit in your time. Grow us, Lord. We do not like the potter's wheel. 
we do not enjoy the furnace. But we were reminded at the beginning of service that wherever we are here with us, in the furnace is the Son of Man. In the valley of the shadow of death, you walk with us, Lord. Meet us wherever we are tonight, Lord. And use whatever we're going through to sanctify us. We, we yield to you, Lord. And we do that in Jesus' name.